Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Margaret Walls. My guest today is John Leshy, Emeritus Professor at the UC Hastings College of Law in California. John has served in multiple prominent positions in the federal government, including as solicitor or general counsel in the Department of the Interior for the whole of the Clinton administration. He also co-chaired the Obama administration transition team for Interior, and he is a noted expert on natural resources law and public lands. John is here today to talk about his new book, Our Common Ground, A History of America's Public Lands. The book provides a fascinating and incredibly detailed history of public lands in the United States going back to the nation's founding. It dispels some myths about public lands and discusses some of the current issues of the day. We're going to talk to John about all of this. Stay with us. Hello, John. It's great to talk with you today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate the opportunity, Margaret. Thank you. Great. So what we normally do here is before we dive into our topic of conversation, I just want to ask you a little bit about yourself. I mentioned your illustrious career, but can you tell us how you came to have an interest in environmental and natural resources law in the first place, sort of what inspired you and how you became an expert on public lands? Well, about 50 years ago, and this will date me, I lucked into a job uh, helping the Natural Resources Defense Council, which was a startup national environmental organization, open its Western office. And uh, uh, my portfolio was basically to advocate for protecting public lands uh, any way I saw fit. And so I kind of plunged into the area, and I became fascinated with the history and the politics of public lands. And kind of the rest is history. I spent most of my career working yes. on those issues. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thanks. Um, I want to just make sure our listeners have some basic background about public lands before we dive into some questions. So let me just start with a couple of facts. First, I want everyone to know the federal government owns a lot of land. So it owns 640 million acres, and that's about 28% of the country's land area. And the 13 western states, it's more than half of the land is federal land. And people should know four agencies manage most of the land. About two-thirds of it is with the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service, which manage their lands for multiple uses. And the rest, the other third, roughly, is split between the Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Park Service. A couple of other agencies own a little bit. So I just want everyone to be clear that the lands we're talking about are, there's a lot of them, and they're very important to the landscape of our country. So I want to start off with the big picture message in your book, John, Um, one of them anyway, and that's perhaps contrary to popular belief. Um, You feel that public lands have not actually been particularly controversial and divisive over their long history, that they have brought us together more than divided us. And some folks might be surprised by this. They might think about controversies over certain national monuments, or people might know about the so-called sagebrush rebellion and things like that. But you kind of tell a different story. So can you just say something about that, maybe with some examples? or? Sure. Uh, well, you know, as you said, the, the book really tries to dispel some basic myths, including that the public lands have been divisive and controversial, and it's been subject to partisan politics and uh, my book, through many examples of the politics of public lands over the last 240 years, uh, really does prove, I think, that, that that's essentially not true, that the public lands have been largely a unifying force from the very beginning. And one great example, uh, I spent some time on the book, is the creation of the National Forest System, which was done by 
uh, Republican and Democratic presidents between about 1890 and 1910 uh, with bipartisan support and with local support. Uh, in other words, the National Force in Colorado, for example, were created because the Chambers of Commerce in Denver and Colorado Springs and a lot of other community groups petitioned the federal government to have that happen. And that happened all over the West. It happened all over the country. Uh, and two other examples I talk about are uh, Big Bend National Park in Texas and, and Everglades National Park in Florida. Both of those parks were created. They were private land that was bought with state taxpayer money by the states and donated to the federal government to to make them national parks. So they were they were typical examples of how the public lands have come about. Yeah. Oh, we could spend the whole episode on this because I really find it fascinating. Um, another thing I found fascinating in the book, I found a lot of things fascinating, is many of us know, you know, some of the history of public lands, you know, about the national park system or Teddy Roosevelt's legacy and things like that. But I really found it fascinating, um, some things you told about um, the original 13 colonies and how the federal government came to own land in the first place, what the impetus was for that and in the founding and the westward expansion of the country. So can you just talk about that early history? Sure. The book, actually, I opened the book with the story of uh, how the, the first public lands came about. And they came about because after the Declaration of Independence, we had 13, the 13 former colonies were trying to form a national government. Uh, and uh, and they stalemated for about four years because they couldn't bring all 13 former colonies together behind the so-called Articles of Confederation um, because six of the states had fixed western boundaries and seven, the other seven, had open-ended boundaries and had claims to western lands beyond the Appalachians. And the six states with the western fixed boundaries feared that they would be dominated by the other states because they had all these expansive claims. And so they refused to ratify the Articles of Confederation. They, they refused to give formal support to the national government until the seven states with the claims gave them up. And they eventually did. Took took quite a few years, but eventually they did. And they gave those claims to the national government. So they were the first public lands. Uh, the United States government started off with this idea that they were holding these lands west of the Appalachians and then used them over the next several decades to kind of keep the nation together as the, as the European expansion went across the continent uh, through infrastructure, roads and railroads and, and uh, forming state governments and giving them lands to start them out. So uh, from the very beginning, the public lands played this, this sort of unifying role, stitching, keeping the nation together as it expanded. Right. Yeah, fascinating. Um, and I'm going to go also some earlier history, and that's the Civil War. And I noticed that you said in the book that the Civil War broke a log jam that had stymied public lands legislation for about a decade. So can you tell us about that? And there were some really important laws, I think, that passed in the early 1860s clearing that log jam. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. In the pre-Civil War era, like everything else, the public lands were caught up in the slavery controversy and the division of the country over whether to abolish slavery in the slave states and the non-slave states. And so a lot of things got gummed up in that process. And some, most people have some idea that there was this disastrous Supreme Court decision called the Dred Scott case in the 1850s, which kind of cemented slavery into the Constitution. What most people don't realize is that Dred Scott actually also dealt with the public lands. And the, the Supreme Court in that case <laughs> issued a truly astonishing decision that basically said the federal government had no constitutional power over public lands because they feared 
that the national government would use that to help abolish slavery. So Dred Scott was in part a, a kind of an anti-public lands decision, which was discredited at the time and, and thereafter. So, uh, so no real significant public land legislation got passed in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s because of the slavery controversy. And then when the Southerners walked out in the beginning of the Civil War, that, that freed up the Congress to address these issues. So within, I think, the four or five weeks in, in June of 1862, uh, Congress passed the Homestead Act, which was the first big agricultural settlement act. It passed the first Transcontinental Railroad Land Grant Act, which led to the eventual disposition of more than 100 million acres of public lands to railroads, and it passed uh, uh, the Morrill Act, which was a really significant law, which used public lands to create higher education systems in every state. Uh, we speak of land-grant colleges. That, that was the Morrill Act. So all those laws passed right at the beginning of the Civil War because of this loosening of the of the slavery uh, logjam, and and that charted the course for the next several decades of what the public lands were going to be used for, primarily settlement, promoting education, and that sort of thing. Right, right, yeah, super interesting. Um, so let's talk about that. So a, a lot of this early uses and purposes of, of public lands were more for helping with settlement, um, resource extraction and use. When did we first start protecting public lands more for their value of their scenery, recreation opportunities, and the like. Maybe talk about how that played out eventually in the creation of the National Park Service. Sure. The, the first significant uh, act along that line was right in the middle of the Civil War, actually, 1864. President Lincoln signed into law a, a, a piece of legislation that, that uh, uh, took the Yosemite Valley, owned by the federal government, and gave it to the state of California, but under the strict condition that it be maintained inalienable for all time for public use and enjoyment. Uh, and that eventually came back to the United States in 1890 and was made a national park, but that was the first sort of scenery, recreational use of public lands, 1864. Um, and then in 1872, Congress created the uh, first real national park that was Yellowstone, kept in federal hands, wasn't given to the state. Uh, and those two existed pretty much isolated alone until around 1890. And then in 1890, uh, that idea kind of gained more and more force, uh, and uh, more national parks were created. And, and other public lands, like the national forests that were coming into existence at the time, were also used for recreation and public enjoyment, not just simply for logging and, and other extractive uh, purposes. So that idea of the public lands as being uh, uh, a source of inspiration and, and enjoyment uh, was there kind of from the beginning, but gained force, particularly in the 19-teens, in the 20s, in the 1930s. The National Park System was actually created, and the National Park Service was actually created in 1916, uh, and then really took off from there. And, uh, uh, and then over time, the other public lands managed by these other agencies also, uh, and today are heavily used for recreation and, and inspiration and public enjoyment. So that, in fact, if you look at how all these 600-plus million acres of lands are used, their primary use today is inspiration and enjoyment and not extraction. Uh, and that's kind of another myth out there because the amount of public land, acre for acre, that's used for 
these broad public purposes is actually much larger than the ones used for sort of in conventional industrial and extractive purposes. Right. Yeah, that's a very good point. I'm going to sort of follow up on, on these things you're talking about now, and I, uh, I had to make some choices in this interview to decide which of the many interesting things in the book to cover. And you talk about various pieces of legislation over the years. We've already touched on a few of them, but I want to talk about two in particular right now, ask you to talk about two. And the first is the Antiquities Act of 1906. So tell us about the Antiquities Act, why it came to pass. I, I learned, I know a lot about the Antiquities Act, but I learned a lot from your book that I didn't know. And just tell our audience what it does and what's its importance today. Yes. Uh, it was uh, the product of actually bipartisan cooperation in Congress. The primary sponsor was a Republican from Iowa. Uh, the original impetus was to protect cultural and archaeological sites on public lands. But the guy who drafted it was very, very astute and said, and deliberately said about giving the president the power to create, uh, to, to set aside and reserve and protect public lands for uh, to protect features of scientific and historic interest, which is actually quite broad. And Theodore Roosevelt signed it into law and then very quickly used it to protect 800,000 acres of the Grand Canyon in Arizona and then shortly after that to protect a half a million acres of the Olympic Peninsula in Washington. So from the very beginning used to set aside broad areas of public lands to protect them. And it was, the label used was National Monument. And the reason Congress picked the labeled monument was because Congress uh, jealously guarded its power to put a park label on, on public land. So only Congress can create national parks. But Congress said, well, we want the president to have a similar power, but we're gonna, the president's power is going to be labeled a national monument, not a park. Over the last 120 years, uh, almost the uh, presidents of both political parties have used the Antiquities Act and is still, are still using it today to protect uh, totally more than 100 million acres of public lands. Uh, and usually, almost every case, Congress comes along and ratifies and approves what the presidents have done. For example, there are about 63 units of public lands that have that national park label, half of them were first protected by presidents using the Antiquities Act. So this, the Antiquities Act and Congress have always you know, kind of worked together. The executive and, and the legislative have worked together under that act. Right. Another thing, I, I'm going to follow up on that question because there's language in the Antiquities Act says that the limits of that in all cases shall be confined to the smallest area compatible with proper care and management of the objects to be protected. And I have often thought, you know, people say that that language is the contentious piece of it. You know, we don't know how large is large. And I think you had some observations about that going back to that was intentional and strategic. Yes, absolutely. The drafter of that act knew quite well what he was doing in, in terms of creating a, a, an expansive power. And the presidents, like I said, from the beginning used it that way, Theodore Roosevelt at the Grand Canyon, uh, et cetera. And interestingly, um, that has, from time to time, the president's use have been challenged in court. And there have been a number of lower federal courts and the Supreme Court of the United States have passed on president's powers using the act and in every single case have upheld it without a single dissent by any justice. 
or judge. So uh, we've, we've had the courts basically endorse how the presidents and the Congress working together have, have used the act to protect these broad areas of land. And, and I don't, frankly, anticipate that changing. I mean, and, and it is a, uh, uh, you know, what is a, a feature of historic or scientific interest that can be as broad as, a, as a, an ecosystem uh, or, uh, you know, very, very, uh, when the Supreme Court passed on the, Grand, the Roosevelt's use at the Grand Canyon, it said, you know, of course, 800,000 acres sounds like a lot of land, but, you know, this is the, this is the largest, uh, most prominent canyon in the world, uh, and uh, so if you're going to protect that feature, you've got to protect a lot of land. So right. that's yeah. the way it works. Very good point. So the second piece of legislation I decided I wanted to talk about is the Wilderness Act. So the Wilderness Act passed in 1964. You have a chapter on the Wilderness Act in your book, and you have a subheading I noticed in that chapter called The Long Battle for the Wilderness Act. So I just wondered if you could tell us a little about that long battle, um, how it came to pass, what its impact has been. And I think it's, there's some bipartisan uh, nature here of in wilderness areas, so maybe you could talk about that as well. Sure. Uh, long battle in the sense that the idea of, of holding lands relatively undisturbed goes back decades. I mean, goes back to the 19-teens or 1920s. The agencies, uh, both the Park Service and the Forest Service, uh, started to you know, keep lands in, in relatively undisturbed condition as far back as that. But then in the 1950s, the idea gradually emerged that, that this should have legislative backing, that, that Congress should actually uh, specifically authorize agencies to protect lands in their sort of so-called wilderness state. And uh, bipartisan from the beginning, one of the very prominent movers for this legislation was a, a conservative Republican from Pennsylvania named John Saylor. Uh, and Hubert Humphrey of Minnesota, a Democrat, was uh, instrumental in, in doing this. It took about eight years to get through Congress, went through many drafts. Uh, and along the way, something very interesting happened, which was that there was a conservative uh, Democrat from uh, Colorado's Western Slope named Wayne Aspinall, who didn't like the idea of wilderness, actually. He, he favored industrial uses of public lands more, more than not. Uh, but... He let the Wilderness Act go through with one important condition, and he said, I don't want any acre to go into wilderness unless Congress has passed a law that puts it there. So Congress is the gatekeeper of the wilderness system. Now, Aspinall thought that that condition would actually limit the amount of wilderness because he thought that uh, the way Congress works, anybody who's worked around it for a while knows that you don't pass a piece of legislation that specifically addresses an area of public lands unless it has at least the endorsement or at least the acquiescence of the members of Congress of that congressional delegation. So you have kind of an informal local congressional veto over legislation that applies to particular areas. Aspinall knew that well and thought, Okay, I'm going to make Congress a gatekeeper. That's going to mean that there's, there's only going to be acres in wilderness if the local congressional representatives approve it. Well, he, uh, he completely underestimated how popular the wilderness idea would be. And uh, so since the Wilderness Act passed in 1964, Congress has passed dozens, hundreds of individual laws putting more than 100 million acres in the, in the national wilderness system. Again, all with this uh, uh, local congressional uh, acquiescence. And so wilderness has emerged with the Antiquities Act as being the two most prominent uh, sort of statutory mechanisms by which public lands are protected in large quantities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
Great. Um, John, you explain right up front in the book that this is not a history of the taking of lands from indigenous peoples. That's not what your book is about. However, one of the later chapters describes the modern era of Native American tribes vis-a-vis public lands. So one thing I wanted to ask you about that's in this chapter is the increasing use of cooperative management arrangements between tribes and the federal land management agencies for protected sites. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what do you see the future looking like in that regard? Sure. Just one note on why I don't talk about the dispossession of Native Americans from their lands um, uh, in the public land story is because it's a different story. And it, and it happened before my story started. My story starts pretty much in the 1890s when the United States began setting aside and holding on to large areas of land. The dispossession started with Columbus and, and had pretty much ended by the, uh, not long after the Civil War, basically. So it's a different story told in, in many good books and all of that, and I just couldn't deal with <laughs> add to the length of an already lengthy book by talking about that. But as you say, I do talk about in the modern era how a very important development in public land law and policy has been the emergence of and the rise, the revitalization of Indian sovereignty and the the tribes and the Indian nations are seeking to exert more and more influence over how their ancestral lands that are now public lands are managed. And they've had quite a few successes and that, uh, uh, that I recount in this chapter about how, in fact, uh, public lands today are managed uh, increasingly with an eye toward uh, uh, paying attention to the concerns of, of Native Americans. And to some extent, that has uh, sometimes resulted in uh, uh, what's kind of loosely called co-management, although it doesn't have a, uh, a strict legal definition. But the idea that tribes play a role in the, in, in the management process and defining management policies for particular areas. Uh, in, in a few cases, Congress has actually given lands back, uh, passed statutes that said the tribe in this place has enough, uh, a strong enough equitable claim to those lands that they ought to manage them and they ought to have title to them. Uh, and that's done that in a few times. In terms of the future, we're going to see more and more of this. It's obviously very significant that the Secretary of the Interior, which uh, presides over the agencies that manage most of the public lands, is a Native American, first Native American and uh, cabinet member in American history, and obviously has an interest in, in pursuing this. And so there's a lot going on. I think it's very hard to predict or say with specificity what's going to happen. It's very local. It, it, it kind of depends. What What's happening now all over where there are public lands is that there are often discussions and negotiations over what role a tribe, a particular uh, group should play, or groups, and because uh, if you know anything about Native American history, there's a, it's very complicated. Uh, I think when I first started to work for the Interior Department, somebody said, well, remember this, you know, if you know one tribe, you know one tribe, uh, because they're all, you know, somewhat different. And so you have a lot of variation among, uh, uh, about what's happening in this area, but it is a, a prominent feature of modern public land policy, and I expect will continue. Yep. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm going to take the interviewer's prerogative here and ask you a question that isn't covered to a great extent in the book, and that's I'd like to ask you about climate change and the coming energy transition away from fossil fuels and what role you see public lands playing. So as background for our listeners, about 25% of U.S. oil and gas production currently 
comes from federal lands and waters. A lot of that is waters offshore. Um, many people see public lands as an opportunity for extensive renewable resources development like wind and solar. Public lands are the home to some critical minerals like lithium that are necessary for batteries. So there's a, a lot of um, intersections, if you will, between public lands and the energy transition. So can I ask you to talk about that a little bit? What role do you see public lands playing in the future? What conflicts or challenges might be sitting there? Sure. Um, the, um, uh, you know, one of my favorite aphorisms is that Stone Age did not end because we ran out of stones. It ended because we found better ways of doing things. And uh, I think that, you know, everybody now pretty much recognizes that we have to decarbonize the the economy, and uh, that's not going to end because we run out of petroleum or fossil fuels. It's going to end because we realize there's a better way to do things, and if we're to avoid catastrophe, we have to do these things. Um, And uh, I think the public lands overall have a pretty powerful message along that line, because what they illustrate really in the long sweep of history is that they represent the political system making a collective decision that the longer-term interests of the United States uh, outweigh the sort of narrower, shorter-term interests, and that we ought to hold lands like Yosemite and Yellowstone and many more broadly for these long-term public purposes. And, and that's exactly what we have to do in order to deal with the climate problem. So it's a really good, powerful lesson of a political success story for how to do that. Now, uh, what specific role the public lands are going to play in this process, uh, I think is actually already happening. And the examples I use are, uh, uh, you know, we had a 40-year fight over whether or not to develop oil and gas in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which is a large area of public lands on the Alaska North Slope. And uh, Congress said no in 1980, and then in 2017, on a strict party-line vote, uh, Congress opened it up to oil and gas leasing. And so the Trump administration, right before it left office, held a big sale, a lease sale up there, expecting to raise billions of dollars for the state of Alaska and the federal government to close the budget deficit, et cetera, et cetera. Nobody showed up. Almost nobody showed up. All of the major oil companies stayed away because they didn't want uh, the public backlash. Uh, and the costs were very high. And of course, ironically, one of the reasons the costs were very high is because the Arctic is warming three or four times faster than the, than the rest of the country. And, uh, and building infrastructure for this new kind of development is very expensive because you have to build it on frozen ground. And, and ironically, one of the pending proposals to open up more of the western Arctic outside the refuge to oil and gas leasing involves the use of chillers where you have fossil fuels being used to refrigerate the permafrost to keep it frozen longer so you can develop, you can put in the infrastructure more cheaply so you can extract more oil and gas to warm the planet further. I mean, it it really is a little bit bizarre. So you have the Arctic refuge oil and gas sale kind of going nowhere. I mean, it raised a total of $14 million in bids. They expected billions. And then around the same time, or a year later, the Biden administration put uh, uh, offshore tracks off of Long Island up for wind energy leasing. Huge response, more than $4 billion worth of bids for the offshore wind uh, off Long Island. They had a lease sale last week off California that raised almost a billion dollars. So 
the market is speaking here in terms of what the public lands are, are, uh, are how they're going to be used. Now, that's not to say there's going to be some really, uh, there are going to be some really complicated, challenging problems. Um, I think one of the big problems is going to be transmission, because as we re, uh, redo the electrical system, uh, we're going to need more transmission lines. And inevitably, that involves public lands, because the public lands are so prominent and particularly in the West, that you can't build anything without crossing public lands. Uh, how that happens, uh, one of the things I've learned over a long time dealing with public lands is every acre has a friend, okay? And so the, the not-in-my-backyard syndrome uh, is as true on public lands as it is anywhere else. And uh, it is not that easy to, you know, build something like a transmission line. Uh, there are going to be people objecting to it. Uh, and uh, th that's going to be a challenge for the government to, to work that through. Uh, they'll have to, but, but I, I think they, uh, they will. So that's, that's going to be a, a, a flashpoint. Uh, the critical minerals issue that you mentioned is, is also a flashpoint, although there's, there's a lot of kind of misinformation out there about critical minerals because you have to go mineral by mineral uh, in terms of deciding what role the public lands might play because some of the critical minerals are not found on public lands or are as plentiful on private lands as they are on public lands, and so it raises uh, interesting issues that way. And uh, also, uh, as you probably know, Margaret, the, the primary law that governs these critical minerals is this law that passed in 1872 uh, and is still on the books. And I think just about anybody who knows something about that law knows that it's not a very good tool. <laughs> it's so archaic and antiquated and has so much red tape connected with it that it's not a very uh, uh, efficient uh, tool for developing minerals, which probably is going to require Congress to, to address that if it's going to move into this new era. Uh, so lots happening here, and there'll be lots to watch for sure. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm glad you got in on a little discussion of the mining law, which you also have a book on, published by Resources for the Future, I'll have you know. All right, John, it's been great having you here. We close the podcast now with our regular feature, which we call Top of the Stack, where we ask our guests to recommend more good content, whether a book, an article, a podcast, a movie. Uh, to our listeners. So, John, what's on the top of your stack? Well, you know, the, the book I would recommend is uh, by a guy named Ross McPhee, and it's called The End of the Megafauna. I read it uh, a couple of months ago and found it utterly uh, fascinating. What it does is it addresses the science of, of trying to unravel the, the mystery of why Starting around 50,000 years ago, these huge animals that roamed over much of the earth um, uh, died out. And there's a big debate as to how much the uh, indigenous peoples had a role in this, how much climate change had a role in this, and all of that. And this book is a really good, interesting examination of the science and the debates over this, and is illustrated with these wonderful uh, artist renderings of these animals. And it's, uh, it's a great book, really oh, a great book. Oh, great. I'm going to put that on the top of my stack. That sounds fantastic. Well, John, thank you so much for coming in today. It's really been great having you here. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. 
you can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.